Amen. Who's been blessed already in the service? Man, Lucy's testimony just wrecked me a little bit. Got a little teary-eyed. I don't know what it is about church. I, I'm usually very manly. <laughs> I feel like I'm a pretty manly guy, but um, there are times where God just wrecks me during a service, and I ball like a little girl. And so there it is. Um, I'm just so encouraged by it, and it's so uh, just so awesome to see God move in ways that we can't explain, and that God answers us, and that God is with us, and that God is present in our lives. It's just it's so good. Um, today, the um, we might have to split it up a little bit, but we'll figure it out. We'll see what you know, the way that God leads. But today, the word that is in my heart is called the truth about worship. And we're going to be discussing worship. We're going to be talking about the essence of worship, what it is, and try to break it down a little bit. I thought this video and this song was the perfect way to begin um, because it really, you know, highlights the message that God's put in my heart. That worship is so much more than a song. That we often have a misnomer. We say it's time to worship when the band is coming up and playing. And, and there's something about music that brings us to worship, right? There's something about music, though, that brings us and that breaks us down a little bit more to make us in a more worshipful or put us in a more worshipful mood but worship is so much more than that. And, um, you know, I just wanted to read one part of the lyrics that really stuck to me where he says, take a break from all the plans that you've made and sit at home alone and wait for God to whisper. Beg him, please, to open his mouth and speak and pray for real upon your knees until they blister. Which is crazy. Shine the light on every corner of your life until the pride and lust and lies are in the open. Then read the word and put to test the things you've heard until your heart and soul are stirred and rocked and broken. And the chorus says, because you can sing all you want to. Yes, you can sing all you want to. You can sing all you want to. And still get it wrong. Worship is more than a song. We must not worship something that's not even worth it. Clear the stage. Make some space for the one who deserves it. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for all that you've already spoken here in our hearts, Lord, and all that you're already ministering in our hearts, Father. And I pray in Jesus' name that you just continue to speak. That is my prayer, Father. Continue to speak through me. Continue to speak to hearts, Father. Teach us what worship truly is. That we may worship you in truth and in spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians says this, 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever activity you are involved with, do it all for the glory of God. How, how does that make sense? If you're brushing your teeth, how am I brushing my teeth for the glory of God? 
How is it possible to do every single thing I do for the, wor- for the glory of God? But let me challenge you to say that that is the essence of worship. Worship is not a moment reserved in service. Worship is not only happening right now within these four walls. Worship is more all-encompassing. It's, it's, it's about the essence of who we are. It's about giving our all to God. And it's possible to do everything that we, we do, every activity, to do it for the glory of God. And that is true worship. Rick Warren says, Anything you do that brings pleasure to God is an act of worship. Like a diamond, worship is multifaceted. Anthropologists have noted that worship is a universal urge. We're hardwired by God into the very fiber of our being. An inbuilt need to connect with God. Worship is as natural as eating or breathing. If we fail to worship God, we always find a substitute, even if it ends up being ourselves. The reason God made us with this desire is that he desires worshipers. Jesus said, the Father seeks worshipers. Harold Best, who is the author of Unceasing Worship, defines worship as such. He says it's a continuous outpouring. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, all that I can ever become in light of God or a chosen God. So can I just tell you that, like I said, worship is not a specific moment. You are in the constant act of worship. Everything that you do is somehow an act of worship. Worship touches the, the very essence of who we are. Every time we exert time, energy, resources, money into any activity, there is an act of worship happening in that activity. Are you with me? Now, when that act of outpouring, when we are outpouring, when that activity is done in a way that honors God, that glorifies Him. That is true worship. When it is done in a way that glorifies or that focuses on any other thing but God, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. And so can I just tell you, you are always either in an act of idolatry or in an act of worship. In everything that you do, you are either practicing idolatry or practicing or actively practicing worship. Idolatry is one of the most talked about sins of the Bible. It infuriates the heart of God. The first of the 10 commandments deals with this. It says, "You shall have no other gods before me." Psalms talks about this. In Psalms 13, he says, "The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands." They have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. See, when we're sinning, we're not st- we don't stop worshiping. We're just actually directing our worship away from the Creator and towards the creation. That is sin. When we divert our worship from God who is deserving of all worship and we and we when we focus it on everything else on creatures on us 
on ourselves, on other people. That's why 1 John, when John is summarizing the entire epistle, he talks about so many awesome things. He talks about the Son of God. He's expanding about the love of the Father. And almost randomly, he ends 1 John, the entire book. It seems completely uncorrelated with everything that he, written, he wrote before. He says, but children, keep yourselves from idols. He summarizes everything that he says with this statement. Just keep yourself from idols. Why? Because he knows that we have, we're, we're inclined, we have a proclivity to, to just pour ourselves into things that are not worth it. Into things that, that, that don't deserve all that we have to give. Romans talks about this. He talks about idolaters who exchange the truth of God, about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And see, the problem that we have is that idolatry was, was, more, was easier to recognize probably back in the Old Testament days when we read about it because they're literally carved images of stone, of wood, of silver that people would bow down and worship. Today's idolatry is much more subtle. It's masked in layers of, and masks and layers of complexity, and we, and we don't identify it as such because we think idolatry is reserved for when people go and worship, you know, little images. But can I say that anything that consumes your time, your energy, that you immerse yourself in it, and you get more and more involved in it, and you spend your limited resource on it with the, with the uh, ability or with the, with the, um, Goal of selfish gain, of selfish ambition, of selfish desire, that is idolatry. Are you with me? And so let's talk about a couple of idols of today. The idol of work. And it's so poignant that Lucy gave her testimony because I believe that through her work, she is worshiping God. She, she gets it. She has made her job an altar of worship to God. And it encouraged me to do the same. As tough as that may be. Waking up, especially with tomorrow being Monday. But there's an idol of work. This, this selfish pursuit of money. A constant pursuit of just increasing our net worth. As if that is the end goal. Not realizing that we are actually called to steward what God has given us. Steward it well. That any resource that He gives us that comes in abundance, He calls us to give it to others, to share it with others. And yet we can often just be consumed by work, consumed by this, this desire to make our names great, to, 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 to pursue a higher net worth. That any bonus that we receive, we keep to ourselves, we don't give back. We don't give it to church. We keep our tithes. We don't offer it to people in need. That is idolatry. You can idolize people, is the other idol of this day. Bad, unhealthy relationships can become an idol. 
if you find yourself obsessing over someone, or you know, people that start a relationship and then they start to think that the other person is, is everything in their lives and they keep them away from church and keep them away from healthy friendships with other people. You start to idolize that person. You're pouring yourself up over that person. You're spending all of your time consuming all of your energy just on that person. Also, when we put other people's opinions and views above God's views, we are idolizing them and engaging in the act of idolatry putting their opinions above God's, when we allow them to define our identity, we are worshiping them over God. We're mixing up the fear of man with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Ed Welch says this, We fear in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your full trust in people or needing people. The fear of man can be summarized in this way. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. When we, when we are in our teens, it's called peer pressure. When we are older, it's called people pleasing. Recently, it can be called codependency. But people can become idols in our lives. So often, I remember in middle school, the peer pressure was real. And I, and I, and I would define my identity by, by what other people thought of me. And so I tried to mold myself to, to the image that I thought was best and most pleasing to what other people wanted and what other people expected of me. That is putting their views above God's. That is putting our value in their hands, that is idolatry. There's the idol of entertainment and the idol of comfort. When entertainment consumes all of your free time, you're always saying you don't have time for anything else, yet you binge watch Netflix, yet you are, you know, spend hours a day on, on video games. That's an idol. <laughs> Got them. Idol of comfort and idol of entertainment. Celebrities in this category can become an idol when you're consumed by following your favorite celebrity on Instagram or your favorite leader on Instagram. Sports and sports teams are idols. I come from a Brazilian family. This is ingrained in our culture. My grandfather, since the day I was born... Every single birthday is decorated with Fluminense. Every single birthday that he had is all decorated with the sports team that he follows, with the soccer team that he follows. It's ingrained in Brazilian culture. We spend thousands of dollars, so much money following and idolizing our sports. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying that we need to now stop and... You know, no more sports. No, there's a healthy balance there. But, but when it becomes obsessive, when you, you look at these images of the Super Bowl and people are crying over teams that lost, people are obsessing over it like, no, the Rams lost. And meanwhile, the Rams players are going home, millionaires still, made so much money in that game. And we're upset and we're there. Woe is me, Lord. 
<laughs> yeah, waking up Monday morning to the grind. Man, it can become obsessive. It can become idolatry. Thankfully, our boy Tom Brady won the Super Bowl. That's the idolatry of entertainment, of comfort. There's the idol of self. Can I challenge you to think that the probably the most common created thing that we worship today is ourselves. We are constantly engaged in putting our selfish interests over everything else, our selfish ambition over everything else, our desire to become better and more and more and be more successful. We're putting that over God's calling over our life, over God's purpose over our lives. I read an example about a, a pastor who was consoling a woman, a woman who, who was just distraught over um, sin that she had committed. And she had already come to God, and she was you know, actively serving in church, but she, she went up to this pastor and she said, Pastor, I just can't forgive myself for this. I know Jesus has forgiven me. I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. That is idolatry. That is saying that your sense of judgment, your sense of morality is greater than God's. If you can't forgive yourself for a sin, but you've already repented, you've asked God forgiveness, can I just encourage you to say that Jesus has taken that sin and thrown it into the sea of forgiveness. He doesn't hold it over your head anymore. And you need to understand that He is Lord above morality. He is Lord above judgment. And He has already given you the freedom to live without the weight of your past holding you down. So stop idolizing yourself. Stop thinking that your perception of, of what's right and wrong is greater than Jesus's because it's not. That's idolatry. There's the idol of religion. In the New Testament, the idol that Jesus most fought against was this. Religion. Pharisees. Jewish traditions that were just just completely missed the point of what God was trying to do. And this still happens today when we elevate our denomination, our traditions, our worship service style, our specific church, our building, a specific biblical translation that we hold above all others, a music style, a theological system, a ministry, a program, a pastor or leader who dictates to us what's right and wrong to the point where they become a replacement for Jesus. Only Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, and so often we can idolize religion, idolize traditions over Jesus himself, over what God has for us. Are you with me, church? God's heart is not touched by tradition and worship, by, but rather by passion and commitment in worship. The Bible says this in Isaiah 29, 13, These people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. It's possible for you to be here in the quote-unquote worship team and be engaged in worshiping yourself and be engaged in trying to steal the glory from God and trying to take it all for yourself. 
it's possible that you can be here preaching, speaking the word of God, and trying to do it in a way that makes your name great instead of making God's name great. Of trying to elevate your name instead of elevating Jesus' name. Are you convinced now that idolatry is just most of what we do? <laughs> We're constantly engaged in this sin of, of allowing ourselves to value, to worship things, creatures rather than the Creator of putting people's opinions and views of us over what God has already dictated over our lives, of putting our selfish pursuit of wealth over the truth of Scripture which says that everything that we have comes from God and He's just given it to us so that we can steward it well. As John Calvin said, the human heart is an idle factory. But as we destroy our idols by the grace of God, our entire lives are transformed into acts of worship to God. As we steward and delight in created things without deifying them, and we love people rather than use them. Worship, we are, again, if you don't remember anything, just remember this. We are constantly engaged in the act of worship. It all comes down to where our focus is, what our purpose is, and where our heart is in every activity that we do. When our focus is to glorify God, then we are worshiping Him well. When our focus is to glorify ourselves and to put people's opinions over us, whatever, it's idolatry. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. I think we'll have time. So I wanted to discuss, now that we have an understanding of what true worship is, and distinguished it between idolatry, five truths about worship. Five biblical truths about worship. The title of the sermon is The Truth About Worship. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. First point, though, is that true worship begins with recognizing who we are before Jesus. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're not, start taking notes. <laughs> True worship begins with recognizing who we are before Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Let's read it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, him being Jesus. Right here, just to paint the picture, Jesus was been invited by a Pharisee named Simon to eat at his house. And verse 37 introduces a new character into the story. He says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in this Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner." And Jesus answer, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Verse 41 said, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. True worship begins with recognizing who we are before Jesus. See, this woman who has been claimed and she's been, she's been identified as sinner, Scripture says this, this woman who was a sinner, meaning she was known, she was notorious in the city for being a sinner. She was labeled sinner, boom. Like the scarlet letter, if you've ever read that book. She had adulteress written on her forehead. She recognized that though. She recognized that she is a sinner in need of a Savior. And so when she comes before Jesus, and it says she, she washed his feet from behind, so it was probably an elevated scene where he was sitting, and then she was probably outside in the courtyard washing his feet from, from behind. When she comes before him, she doesn't have words to describe what she's feeling. All she knows is, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And her act of worship to Jesus Christ was to cry her eyes out before His feet and wash it, and wash His feet with ointment and and, and, and dry it with her hair. See, she had expected that, like the other Pharisees, she'd expected probably that Jesus would, would come in, would be eating, and as soon as she touched His feet, He would probably kick her. He'd be like, who is this? What is going on? But she was, she was overwhelmed with the fact that she knew she was a sinner. And here she was before someone who, who she revered, who was well-known, who was an authority figure. And she, she looked at her, and, and she looked at him and just wanted to pour herself over him. And she was met with mercy and compassion and grace and love. There was no kicking. There was no shunning away. There was just mercy and compassion and love. When we recognize who we are before Jesus, Jesus recognizes us and says, "Ah, that's all I needed. Just be truthful, but just be real with me. And here we're met with two different people, the woman who recognized that she was a sinner and the, and, and the Pharisee, who was judging, who was judgmental, who was saying, this woman is a sinner. Why are you letting her touch and and rub your feet and wash your feet? And see, you're met with this difference of opinion here, this this person who's idolizing himself, who's idolizing religion, who's idolizing his own view of what's right and wrong, represented by this Pharisee and this woman who is just there to worship. She's just there to to pour out her heart and say, Lord, have mercy over me. Woe is me, Lord. I know I'm a sinner, but that's why I need a Savior. 
See, see, this Pharisee thinks he's justified by his morality, by his religion, by his status, but the woman just knows that she's a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. See, when Jesus says, I come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance, he doesn't mean that there are people that are good enough not to need repentance. He means that some people think they are. They are idolaters. And others are worshipers. Others have already repented and have been set right with God. It's possible to have Jesus in your house like Simon did, to eat with him, to enjoy his presence, and still do it all for yourself, still justify yourself, still not worship him for who he is, still trying to beat your own banner, to raise your own banner, to say that you are justified, that you are good enough, that you are moral enough. And you don't realize that maybe some people owe a debt of $500, $5,000, but you still owe a debt of fifty, dollars of $100. You are still in debt. You can come to church, you can read the Bible, you can know about Christ, but never intimately, intimately know Him. Never experience the joy of worshiping Him fully because you don't yet know the depth of your sinfulness and the depth of His love and mercy over you. True worship starts with understanding who we are before God. Without the grace of God, we are nothing. Without Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, we are nothing. We are not good enough. We cannot earn our way to salvation. A commentary I read on this passage says, Why is it that such multitudes of professing Christians are so cold in your Christianity? It's mainly for this reason you've never found out in anything like an adequate measure how great a sinner you are and how sure and sweet and sufficient Christ's pardoning mercy is. And so you're like Simon. You will ask Jesus to dinner, but you will never give him any water for his feet, no ointment for his head. You will do the conventional and necessary pieces of politeness, but not one act of impulse comes over your heart. You simply act on the duties of religion. You discharge the duties of religion. Oh, my brother, if you had ever been down and lost in a horrible pit, if you've ever seen a hand and a face looking down in this pit and an arm outstretched to lift you, if you ever experienced the overwhelming panic of having a wave in the ocean pull you to its depths and feeling the glorious exuberance of setting your feet on the ocean floor, propelling you back up to get a grasp of breath as you breach the water surface, you would come to Jesus and you would say, Lord, take me all for I'm fully redeemed by you. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Does not that explain the imperfect Christianity of thousands of us? Worship begins with understanding who we are before Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. That without Him we are nothing. Without Him we are lost. Without Him we are in desperate need of a Savior. And instead of trying to justify yourself, may you just come like this woman and pour your heart over Him and worship Him. Whatever that act of worship looks like to you, whether it's an alabaster flask of ointment 
or whether it's crying and, 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 wet, and wetting his feet with your tears and drying with your hair, whatever it looks like, may you just understand that worship begins when you realize that you are in desperate need of a Savior. Worship, true worship begins when we realize that Jesus paid the price for our sins, that without Jesus we are nothing, that we need Him, and that He deserves all the glory and all the honor forever and ever. Amen. Second point, true worship happens when we place God at the center of all that we do. Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16 says this, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let us continuously, continually act and offer a sacrifice of praise to God. So many of us are going through lives, make, through our lives, making our own decisions. Never asking God for direction. Never saying, Lord, where is your will in all this? Lord, I received this job offer, but is that your will? Lord, give me your direction, Lord. Worship starts when God is the center of everything that we do. When every decision that we make we put it in light of his word, in light of his will. We put it at his cross and we say, Lord, is this your will? Lord, is this what you want for my life? And it starts with the simplest of details, through the most extreme decisions. Like moving an apartment, moving from your apartment to the other. Like Jesus wants to, to be involved in those decisions. Every year, I tell my wife, we're moving out of our apartment. I'm tired of the, the lack of space. I'm tired of taking an hour to go to, by train to work every day. We're moving out. Then I take it to prayer. I start to contemplate. Yeah, it's actually pretty strategic. It's close to my church. It's not that far away from, from work. I can deal with that for another year. It's also the rent is so much lower than what I would be paying somewhere else. And as I ask God for that direction, he's like, there's just no peace in moving. Hopefully this year will be different. Amen? <laughs> Miniola, hashtag nope. Um, <laughs> but man, why do, why do we have so much difficulty involving God in every single decision? Right? Worship happens when we realize that God wants the best for us. God wants to be at the center of all that we do. When God is at the center and everything is revolving around Him, family, ministry, church, work, career, etc. We realize that God really has what's best for us in store. Too many of us are going through life making our own decisions with Never acknowledging God's will. If you're applying to college, this is for you. Involve God in the process. Ask God, do you want me to move out from New York or do you want me to stay here? Lord, if it is not your will, don't let me get accepted into this, these universities. 
If you're moving jobs, involve God in the process. Lord, show me your will. Show me if this is your will. Every, every big decision I've made, I've put God first. And can I tell you, it's just so, it, it alleviates so much pressure. It alleviates so much pressure of whether or not I'm making the right or wrong decision. It, it's just like, if, it makes you feel free. When I've applied to jobs, I say, Lord, if, if I get it, I'm going, whether you like it or not. So make it so that I don't get it if it's not your will. <laughs> because if I get it, peace, I'm out. And Lord, time and time and time again has closed doors because it wasn't his will. And when he closes those doors and when I put him first and I say, Lord, I want to do your will, a closed door is not a rejection. A closed door shouldn't make me feel sad. It should make me feel light and happy. Say, God, thank you. You freed me from something. You freed me from myself. You freed me from my own selfish ambition, my own selfish desire. And you've allowed me to stay in this job or stay in this position or stay in this school, whatever it is, because that is your will for me. That happens when we involve him in our decision-making. Are you with me, church? And I'll just end there as the band comes up because of time. And I just encourage you, and we'll continue next week, but I just want to encourage you in this. To first of all, amplify your definition of worship. Amplify your definition of worship. Realize that God is with you every step of the way. God wants to be involved in your decisions. Worship is not reserved for this specific moment. Worship is a lifestyle of continuous sacrifice, continuous praise to God, saying, Lord, have it all. Lord, have it your way. Lord, I am your servant. I love you. And children, flee from idols. Keep ourselves away from idols because that is not God's will for our life. Let's sing.